The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark 12, verses 35 through 44. The word of God speaks to us. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she has to live on. This is God's word to us. Thank you so much, Ashley. Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is JJ. I get the joy of serving as one of the pastors here at Frontline, and I'm excited to open this text with you guys this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, with the psalmist, we say again, open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. Lord, this is a heavy text. It's a weighty text. It's a sobering text. Lord, we ask that we would not look at it apart from you, but we would look at it with you. Lord, for every look at our sin, we want to take 10 looks at you. So encourage us this morning, even as you convict us and call us to change. Reassure us that we're safe in your love. Help us, we pray. Amen. For those of you who might not have seen it, the movie Rudy, one of my all-time favorites, semi-fictional, but beautifully written story of a humble guy with very little athleticism or book smarts who somehow manages to walk onto the Notre Dame football team as the unlikeliest of college athletes. And in one scene, while Rudy's still in high school, one of the priests at his Catholic high school, stops him as he attempts to board a bus headed for a tour of Notre Dame. And the priest says, where are you going? I'm going to see Notre Dame. Do you have some friends in South Bend? No. Then there must be some other reason. When you announced it in class, I thought anybody could go. I'm sorry, Rudy. This bus is for students who want to attend the university. It's not a sightseeing tour. Well, maybe someday I'll go to school there. Rudy, you don't have the grades for Joliet Community, much less Notre Dame. The secret to happiness in this life is to be grateful for the good gifts the Lord has bestowed on us. Rudy, not everybody's meant to go to college. There's a certain kind of spiritual leader who comes to people who are hungry wandering, seeking after God, and instead of 
opening a door for them, they put up a wall. In Matthew 23, Jesus describes it like this. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Everybody who claims to be a Christian, whether they really are or not, is always ultimately preaching only one of two gospels. Either the true gospel that proclaims that even though I'm a great sinner, Jesus is a greater savior. Or the false gospel that announces that though everybody needs forgiveness, I've worked hard and earned it myself, but you, you might not make it. And as we continue in our study of Mark's gospel today, we're going to see the main point of our passage is pretty straightforward. Because Jesus gives grace to the humble, because Jesus gives grace to the humble, we need to constantly be on guard against every form of spiritual arrogance. And here in our text, we're going to see Jesus calling us to be on guard against at least three different kinds of spiritual arrogance. What I'm calling this morning second-story Christianity, spiritual hypocrisy, and showy generosity. Second-story Christianity, spiritual hypocrisy, and showy generosity. First, let's consider second-story Christianity. Look again at verses 35 through 37 there in Mark 12. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet, quoting Psalm 110. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son or descendant? And the great throng heard Jesus gladly. This is a significant passage because it marks a significant shift in Jesus' relationship to the scribes, these Jewish scripture experts that have been constantly harassing him throughout Mark's gospel. And up till this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has been fielding their questions. Now they're finally out of questions, and they've fallen into stunned silence in the face of Jesus' virtuosic answers. And now, here in our passage, Jesus rolls up his sleeves and he says, all right, guys, now I'm going to ask you a question. Listen to how it plays out in Matthew's parallel account. You get a little more of the spiciness of this exchange. Verse 41 of Matthew 22. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son or his descendant? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. And you see, that's why in verse 37, in response to Jesus' devastating cross-examination of the scribes, it says, the great throng heard him gladly. Because this would be like Martin Luther leading a Bible study in the Vatican. Jesus has come onto the scribes' home turf. The temple is this towering image of their authority. 
And he's sending a really strong signal to everybody who's paying attention that the authority of the temple and the authority of the scribes is coming to an end. On the eve of his own death, as Jesus is preparing to lay his life down, nobody's going to take it from him. He's shifted now to open confrontation with these corrupt leaders, and he's come to challenge them on their very doorstep. And the people who are listening in are hearing him gladly because they're realizing if there's something that these spiritual gatekeepers have missed, then maybe, just maybe, there's hope for the rest of us. Because according to their teaching, most of us aren't going to make it. They've been laying heavy burdens on our backs that we can't carry. And it's made us realize that not everybody's cut out for the spiritual second story. Not everybody's going to get to hang out with the super spiritual people. That's why Jesus asks in verse 35 of our passage, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? He's taking aim at the scribes. In an honor-shame Eastern culture, ancestors would never address any of their descendants or sons as Lord or Master. So Jesus is pointing out something they don't have an answer for. David himself calls him Lord, so how could he also at the same time be his son or his descendant? Jesus isn't making fun of expertise. What he's doing is waging war on the arrogance of so-called scripture experts who can't even recognize the author of scripture when he's standing right in front of them. And he's asking them to look again at a psalm of David written a thousand years ago that they've been collectively considering now for a thousand years, and he's inviting them to consider whether they're looking at Psalm 110 but not really seeing it. Because he's inviting them to consider whether they're looking at him, but not really seeing him. We saw this play out back in Mark 6, if you remember. He came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What's the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter? The son of Mary, notice there's no mention of Joseph because he had probably passed away by this point. The son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And if these scribes, these scripture experts, are confused as to why this ignorant blue-collar worker from a backwater town is schooling them in their area of expertise, he explains to them why in Matthew 22. Your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Verse 37, and the great throng heard him gladly indeed. You see, one of the surest signs of second story Christianity is that it postures itself as unattainable for average people. Second story Christianity comes with a velvet rope instead of a welcome. Have you ever noticed that when you meet a falsely spiritual person, it tends to leave you more impressed with them and less impressed with Jesus? And when you meet a truly spiritual person, it leaves you less impressed with them and more impressed with Jesus. It's easy to slide into thinking we're better than we really are or that some people 
outside of ourselves are just more spiritual than others. Second story, Christianity. But even if we don't think we're better, it's even easier to slide into pretending we're better. Spiritual hypocrisy. Jesus gives grace to the humble. So we have to be on guard against second story Christianity. But we also have to be on guard against spiritual hypocrisy. Look again at verses 38 through 40. And in his teaching, Jesus said, Beware of the scribes. They like to walk around in long robes. They like greetings in the marketplaces. And they have the best seats in the synagogues. And the places of honor at feasts, they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Here Jesus is warning us to be on guard against spiritual hypocrisy in at least three areas. Our identity, our relationship with ourselves, our community, our relationship with other people, and our piety, our relationship to God. First, identity. Verse 38, Jesus says, they like to walk around in long robes. They like greetings in the marketplaces. These long flowing robes were full-length prayer shawls with huge tassels attached at all the corners to show how incredibly focused and committed they were to praying. These blanket-like mantles could be spotted from a long way off, and they signaled rabbis and scholars, men of prestige and power. And as they're walking around town in these instantly recognizable clothes, the customary greetings that they would receive from the common people are similar to the way a superior officer would be saluted in the military. And Jesus is saying they love being greeted, not because they love people, but because they're in love with their inflated idea of their own spirituality. And they like it when other people play along. Identity. But also community. Verse 39, Jesus says they like to have the best seats in the synagogues, the places of honor at feasts. Their community for these men is really just an echo chamber. Other people exist just to serve them and accommodate them. But after all, that's right and appropriate given their proximity to God. They're not being greedy. If they're honest in their minds, they've earned all the perks they get. It's only right and fitting for crowns to go on the head of kings, and it's only right and fitting that the best parking spot should go to the most important people, their community, but also their piety. Jesus says in verse 40, they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Their piety or their Reverence and devotion to God is just a charade. They're not actually pouring their hearts out to God in prayer. They're just pretending to, so people will think they're spiritual. In the words of one scholar, they make an outward show of religion, while at the same time gobbling up the property of helpless people like widows, probably by continually demanding religious contributions from those who can least spare it. Jesus' conclusion for any spiritual leader who's in it for the money like this is blunt. They will be severely punished. There's hypocrisy of identity and community and piety. No wonder then in verse 38 that Jesus warns his hearers, hey, beware of the scribes. Don't let any of that rub off on you. Now, as dark as hypocrisy is, it should be noted that it exists on a pretty broad spectrum. Not all hypocrisy is as high-handed as the scribes. There's a hard-line, hard-hearted, unrepentant hypocrisy, 
And then there's a desperate and a terrified hypocrisy. Sometimes we're wearing a mask because we love to deceive people like the scribes, but other times we wear a mask because we think it's our only hope of being accepted. Our hypocrisy is more out of desperation than arrogance. It's also important for us to stop and consider how misplaced fear of hypocrisy has often produced a lot of confusion and false guilt for Christians. Hypocrisy is serious, but it's often misunderstood, and we often think we're spotting it when it's not present. Pastor and author Kevin DeYoung explains it like this. He says that most Christians wrongly think of hypocrisy as the gap between what we do and how we feel. If our heart's not in it, then we automatically fear that we're a hypocrite. But think about how far astray that leads us. It doesn't mean we shouldn't work to forgive somebody unless we first feel like forgiving them. When we do the right thing, even when we don't feel like it, that's not hypocrisy, that's maturity. That's being a grown-up. Hypocrisy, DeYoung says, isn't the gap between doing and feeling. Hypocrisy is the gap between a public image we present and our actual character in private when nobody's watching. So DeYoung concludes, the hypocrite's not the Christian who struggles against sin, fights against temptation, and keeps doing what's right even on her worst feeling days. That's a hero. The hypocrite is the Christian who uses the veneer of public virtue to cover up the rot of private vice. The sin of hypocrisy is not that we're more messed up than we seem. That's true for all of us. The sin is in using the appearance of goodness to cloak the deeds of evil. The sin is in thinking that who others think you are matters a great deal more than whom God knows you to be. So, if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, you don't need to be paralyzed by a fear of hypocrisy. But neither should any of us get comfortable with a gap between our duty and our desires. Author and pastor Tim Keller explains it like this. He says the relationship between our duty and our desires is like a baby bird that's fallen out of their nest prematurely and is now trying to stay alive at the base of a tree. And if that baby bird were to see a predator coming and is able to scramble into a hole at the base of the tree to escape and live to run away another day, it should. But over time, that bird's eventually got to learn to fly. If it just keeps scrambling back to that hole, that's not a long-term solution for staying alive. In the moment, if duty constrains you to do the right thing, good. (laughs) But whenever you obey, and as you're obeying, you realize your heart's not in it, you should name that to the Lord. Name that to other people. Pray for God to give you new desires to match your obedience. Over time, you got to learn to fly. So you keep reading your Bible. You keep sitting under the preached word. You keep singing out. You keep coming forward and taking communion. You keep praying fervently until, by God's grace, you can honestly say with the psalmist in Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God, because your law is within my heart. However, if you do see yourself in any of these descriptions of hypocrisy that Jesus has named for us, it's important for you to know that the cure isn't simply to pile enough shame on yourself until you force yourself to knock it off. Now, that might work in the short term, but it's not going to change your heart. It's not going to permanently 
rewire the reasons why we're all tempted to put on a false face. Whenever you spot spiritual posturing or the craving to impress others with something about you that's not true starting to slip back in, it's important to remind yourself we don't really change until we're first radically knocked off center. That's really what Jesus is doing in this passage, isn't he? He tries to draw the crowd into contemplation around God's anointed one, the son of David, who would possess all of King David's good attributes and none of his bad ones. Because he knows that we're never going to stop admiring ourselves or fretting over how spiritually unpresentable we are, which is really just admiring ourselves turned inside out, or trying to convince ourselves we're farther along than we really are, or trying to convince other people that we're farther along than we really are, until we finally see somebody that's far more worthy of our attention, and we get knocked off center. That's what Jesus is doing. He's trying to stir their imagination. He's trying to redirect the gaze of the people in order to lead them to a treasure worth selling everything to get. He's trying to stir their imagination that there might be a king who's so wise and just, who's so pure and holy, that the mere sight of him would instantly knock us all off of our imposter thrones. That the sight of him would lead us to fall down and worship and say with the prophet Isaiah, woe is me. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king. It's easy to slide into pretending, spiritual hypocrisy. But even if we're not tempted as much to pretend, it's still easy to slide into showing off, showy generosity. Jesus gives grace to the humble. So we have to be on guard not only against spiritual hypocrisy, but also showy generosity. Look finally at verses 41 through 44. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury, and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which Mark explains for his Roman readers, make a Roman penny, a 64th of a day laborer's wages. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, I have an announcement to make. (laughs) Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had All she had to live on. All she had to live on. Jesus says, this widow that no one even noticed has actually slipped in and managed to put in more than everybody else. Jesus cuts through all the pomp and circumstance of this public parade of giving what were probably 13 horn-shaped boxes in the court of the Gentiles where people would process in and drop coins, the false importance of all these big givers, and announces that this one destitute woman that nobody noticed has outgiven everybody. God's not fooled by religious posturing and parading, especially by the wealthy. Sadly, in the West, wealth is often used in the church as a disguise, 
or a get-out-of-jail-free card or a means of gaining special privileges. And just like dirty money can sometimes buy off a corrupt and weak politician, dirty money can sometimes buy off a weak pastor. And he'll find himself thinking twice before confronting a large giver, even in the face of outward, serious, and unrepentant sin. And here comes Jesus, and he serves notice that wealthy givers get no special privileges in the kingdom of God, at least in part because God's math actually puts this defrauded widow at the top of the donor list. Now, that doesn't mean that our generosity doesn't please God, whether we have abundant means or little money. It does. Our generosity does please our Father's heart. But it doesn't impress him. It doesn't curry his favor. It doesn't make the rich superior to the poor or deserving of special privileges, pride of place, or a spiritual pass on persistent and unrepentant sin. Generosity's good, but it's no substitute for a lifestyle of repentance and dependence on God in Christ. Because in fact, genuine generosity is actually the natural outflow of first being overwhelmed by the generosity of Jesus. God doesn't love us because we're generous. We're generous because he loves us. Verse 41 tells us that Jesus sat down and he watched and he saw the widow. If you're here today and you're struggling financially, if somebody's taking advantage of you, if you've been defrauded, if you feel powerless and overwhelmed, Jesus is watching. He sees you. He's with you. And just like verse 43, after seeing the situation, he calls his disciples to himself. Because it's Jesus' desire that we, your spiritual family, see what he sees. So you need to let us know if you're suffering, if you're being taken advantage of, if you're overwhelmed. This is a safe place. You won't be shamed or blamed or lectured for your misfortune. We're going to pray for you. We're going to offer comfort and counsel to you. We're going to provide wise help to you. That's how Jesus designed his church to function. Many years ago, counselor and author David Pallison recalls how it came to the attention of the deacons in his church that a single mother in their church was unable to make rent. And her evil landlord was trying to proposition her as payment. And she was close to giving in out of desperation. And the deacons immediately came to her rescue and they provided her with financial help and they assured her that she would never have to consider such a desperate solution again as long as they were alive. You see, part of being the hands and feet of Jesus is vigilantly protecting the financially vulnerable in our midst. Now, there are actually two things going on here in verses 41 through 44. One that's almost always mentioned and one that rarely is. The first thing that's almost always mentioned that we've already noted is Jesus' countercultural commendation of the widow. James Edwards says it best, For Jesus, the value of a gift is not the amount given, but the cost to the giver. Others gave what they could spare. She spared nothing. In that sense, it's a perfect picture of what it means to be truly devoted to Jesus. But there's a second thing going on here in verses 41 through 44 that's rarely ever mentioned. 
And that's Jesus' continued condemnation of the scribes. And that's because verse 41 comes immediately after verse 40. It's profound, right? But look again at verse 40. One of Jesus' strongest indictments of the scribes, verse 40, is that they devour widows' houses. And now, in the very next verse, verse 41, what do we see? A poor widow. And this poor widow, verse 43, comes, and it says, out of her poverty, she's put in everything she had. Notice, all she had to live on. She is a model of faith and dependence on God. But she's also a picture of what happens when unethical spiritual leaders who don't fear the judgment of God prey on the poor. Now, it's not that God doesn't stir our heart to be generous even when money's tight, or that being generous when we're poor is irresponsible. I was personally blessed to have a mother who modeled generosity and faithful giving for me even when we didn't always have a lot to spare. And God always took care of us, and we never went without, even when many times we thought we would. Jesus isn't saying poor people shouldn't be generous. What he is doing is highlighting the brokenness of a system where the shepherds are feeding on the sheep. This poor widow is a pillar of faith. She is commended by Jesus, but she's still also being exploited and neglected. Now that makes this a complicated passage to put on an inspirational poster. It probably shouldn't be used in a generosity devotional. And that can feel confusing because if you've been around the church for any length of time, you've probably heard it used that way many times. We don't need to feel embarrassed if we've used it that way ourselves. We don't need to lose faith in Bible teaching because we've heard someone teach the right doctrine from the wrong text. Because we are called to generosity. And throughout the history of the church, the greatest sacrificial giving has often come from people who seem able to least afford it and from whom the world would least expect it. Paul names this tension perfectly in 2 Corinthians. As he's writing to the church in Corinth to help with a regional collection of money from various churches to support other Christians who are starving and in severe need. Notice what he says in 2 Corinthians 8. I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. Notice, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have what? Overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in this relief effort for the saints. And this is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. I once saw a pastor stand on the stage of his megachurch, which had recently been in the news because they'd spent themselves $10 million into the red, and tell his people that if they didn't regularly give a certain percentage of their money to that church, they were opening themselves up to demonization. First, that's speculative fear-mongering nonsense that's nowhere taught in Scripture. And second, that violates Scripture's clear teaching on giving, which Paul goes on to unpack there a chapter later in 2 Corinthians 9 as further commendation for these poor Macedonian Christians who were invited to give, but in the right way, and who gave generously, but for the right reasons. Paul says, 
verse 7, 2 Corinthians 9. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The kind of giving that honors and pleases God is the result of grace, not guilt. Faith, not fear. Joy, not reluctance. Freedom, not coercion. Never at gunpoint, always out of the overflow of gratitude to God. Here in our passage, indeed throughout Mark's gospel, we learn a lot about Jesus through what he does and what he's come to do. His activity reveals his identity, how he approaches and treats corrupt and powerful people, how he approaches and treats invisible and devalued people, tells us something about this kingdom, tells us something about this king. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He sees straight through to the heart. He's not fooled by outward appearance. He demands generous biblical justice towards the poor. He's not going to settle for just the absence of impropriety. He demands true devotion, and he rejects empty, self-important religious ritual. In the words of one author, if a husband were to ask his wife, must I kiss you? She's wise to reply, yes, but not that kind of must. There's a duty Jesus demands from us, but it's not what you might think. The duty that he demands is the light. And here the scribes are saying, look at me. And Jesus is saying, stop admiring yourselves in the mirror of other people's flattery. Look at me and look at this poor widow. We're called to worship and service. Love for God, love for neighbor. And that's only possible when self-forgetfulness starts to unfold in our hearts instead of self-protectiveness or self-worship. And that kind of self-forgetfulness only comes when we finally see somebody beautiful enough to take us outside ourselves and make us forget about ourselves completely. Pray with me. Lord, open the eyes of our heart as Paul prays. We would see Jesus. Holy Spirit, may we with Isaiah fall down and worship. Be astonished at the beauty of this king and his upside-down kingdom where the invisible and neglected are lifted up and where the proud are pushed down. Jesus, show us your beauty, we pray. As we come to this table today, open our eyes. Amen.